Brothers and sisters, it is a delight to be able to have the immense privilege and responsibility to open God's Word together. And so I would invite you to do that now. Open up in your Bibles to Psalm 13, Psalm 1-3. And as you're doing, please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. Psalm 13. It's not a long psalm, but it is a glorious one, no doubt. And I will begin reading in your hearing in verse 1. Let us give attention now to the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? All the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please find your seat. As you are doing so, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question, one that I'm not supposed to ask you and one that you are not supposed to answer, at least not honestly. Are you ready? Here it is. Here's the question. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Have you ever felt just completely forgotten by God? To the point that you are convinced God is not with you, God doesn't care about you, and God takes no notice of you. Brother or sister, if that even begins to resonate with you, I want to assure you, excuse me, I want to assure you this morning that you are not alone. In fact, if you feel that way, if you've ever felt that way, if you ever do feel that way, you're not alone. In fact, you're actually in pretty good company. I say that not as some empty sentiment. I I say that because as we continue to look together at the various types or kinds or genres of the Psalms, we come this morning to what are often called songs of lament. Now, what is a psalm of lament, you ask? Well, it's a psalm. So remember, it's it's a song. This is meant to be sung by the people of God. It's a song where God's people are desperate, crying out to God for help in the midst of some awful distress in their life. To say the same thing, but go at it a little bit differently, a lament psalm is one where the writer pleads with God to intervene, to deliver him, to rescue him from some great crisis. 
And that crisis, it could be something like enemies within the ranks. It could be some great battle that is looming on the horizon. Or it could even be some life-threatening illness. Now here's, I think, perhaps the most shocking part about all of this, and the part that, that backs up my comment just a moment ago about you being in good company. Psalms of lament are the most common type of psalms, making up, please hear this, nearly a third of all the psalms. Think about that. The ancient hymnal, the one that God Himself inspired, it is loaded, it is pregnant with songs about the people of God at their wits end, crying out to God for help. And so I say again, you are not alone, dear saint. Unfortunately, lament has been the melody of the church ever since Adam's sin in the garden. This is our song, church. And it's a song that we sing far too frequently. I don't think it takes all that long to see and to hear and to feel the very anguish of the psalmist's heart. You can see four times at the very beginning he cries out, How long? And you are not intended to read that as you are reading the Red Robin menu. You are intended to read it with passion, with despondency. Beginning of verse 1, how long, O Lord? End of verse 1 repeats, how long? Not content, the beginning of verse 2, how long? And then you get to the end of verse 2, how long? Do, do you hear this anthem, this chorus? Do you feel the crisis that is existing in the soul of the psalmist? There is an utter hopelessness about him. His heart is torn. His soul is wounded. He has shed all of his tears. He's got nothing left. He's worn out his knees. He's pled and he's prayed and yet nothing. It's just silence. It's just solitude. It is as if there is no one there to hear the desperate cries of this broken man. Church, you want to know when hopelessness sets in? I'll tell you. Hopelessness sets in when there is no expiration date. You see, we can generally experience hardship, turmoil, even great and personal affliction, assuming that we know it is temporary. But when days turn into weeks, and weeks into months, and months into years, we lose hope. And that's where the psalmist is. This is why four times in two verses he cries out, Oh God, how long? It is as if the psalmist is saying, Make it stop! Grant relief! Intervene! Do something! Do something at all! 
Some of you have no doubt traveled this dark path. You've witnessed your beloved wife or husband suffer from a merciless disease. You've stood by and watched your father or your mother just waste away. Maybe you're single and longing for a husband, but the the tick-tock of time is unrelenting. You've struggled for years and years. You've done everything trying to get pregnant, but it is all to no avail. Perhaps your young child has been diagnosed with cancer. And all you can do is sit with him by the bed and soak his pillow with your tears. In all of these situations, and let's be honest, countless more, the cry of the heart is simply the cry of Psalm 13. How long? How long, O God? Now, for our psalmist, this crisis of heart, and this is often true of all of us, it quickly escalates to a complaint of the lips. You'll notice, will you not, that following each of the four how longs, there is a question. (laughs) But we should note that it's not really so much a question, even though it's got a question mark after it. You know what it is, don't you? It's an accusation. He says in verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Do you hear the complaint? Omniscience is suffering from amnesia. Just as you or I might lose our keys. So David is convinced that God has forgotten who he is. That's not a question. It's a complaint. An accusation. The psalmist's second complaint comes at the end of verse 1. He says, How long will you hide your face from me? And here, the complaint has intensified. God has not simply neglected the psalmist, but now has intentionally withdrawn protection and salvation from him. Church, It's not just that God has forgotten him. Now, it's as if God is elusive. He's playing hide-and-seek, a a cruel and wicked game when you are a weak and weary saint. From David's perspective, God has intentionally turned his back on him. And if that's not awful enough, God has done so in the midst of a crisis. Hence the complaint. This leads to the third in verse 2. How long, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? I want you to catch the flavor. Since God has forgotten him and turned his back upon him, now David is left to himself. And by being left to himself, David is now subjected to his own morbid introspection. We might say today, prayer is empty. 
Bible reading is nothing more than checking vain boxes. And going to church, it's about as exciting and refreshing as brushing your teeth. Everything's just mind-numbing. It's just routine. And in all of it, God is nowhere to be found. to the fourth and final complaint. You find it there at the end of verse 2. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Don't miss the thrust of this, church. It's not simply that the psalmist has been abandoned by God. It's far worse than that. From his perspective, God has abandoned him into the hands of his enemies. I would submit to you, it is one thing to be alone apart from God. It is quite another to be apart from God and in the presence of your enemies, subjected to their power, their evil. Now I ask you, my friends, do you feel the anguish of the psalmist's heart? Can you hear from Psalm 13 bubbling up his howling cry? His world is falling apart all around him, and God seems to be in the heavens chuckling. Can we be honest? Do we not go there ourselves? Is this not, in some context, our own lived experience? Don't feel this way. Now granted, we all know that we're not supposed to admit it. We all know that we're not supposed to, to talk about it. We're not supposed to put words to our thoughts. And I think that we do that because we think that good, good Christians are always those who have good days and never a bad day. A good Christian is always happy and overflowing with love and joy. But for so many, And this is true for those in Scripture and for those down throughout church history. The Christian life is one that is often riddled with no shortage of sorrow and pain and anger and even downright frustration. And what makes Psalm 13 so jarring is that you see it in a very real and raw way. There's no holding back. There's no pulling punches. There's no painting on the happy face for Sunday morning. It's just raw. And thankfully, though, the psalm doesn't end in verse 2. We know this because by God's grace, David pushes through. He realizes that though he is in the dark, that there is a speck of light on the horizon. Even though verses 1 and 2 are real and weighty, we're not minimizing that, even though his spirit is crushed, in verse 3, he still turns to God, doesn't he? He cries out in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. Church, you see what has happened. The psalmist has in fact turned to God, even though, at least from his perspective, God has forgotten him and God has turned his back on him. Nevertheless, he still cries out to God. 
Why, you ask? Well, let's be real. Where else is he going to turn? Who or what will you run to other than God in the midst of crisis? Christian, let me ask you directly. In the utter and profound darkness of life, where will you find light? To whom will you turn? Is your faith in Christ? And acknowledge, concede the point, will you not? It is easy. It is easy to trust Christ when it's all sunshine. It's an entirely different matter when the storms are raging. Will your heart trust Christ then? Do you look to Christ then? Is Christ enough then? Maybe to ask it differently. To whom is your cry directed in the midst of your distress? Your friends? Your spouse? Your boss? The government? Where do you turn when you have no one left to turn to? The psalmist, he turns to God. He cries out to him, and his cry is made up of three requests, three desperate pleas. The first is the first word of verse 5. He says, consider, consider me. That word, it has the flavor of look or, or to gaze upon. My daughter will do this all the time. Every five seconds, it feels like, Daddy, look. Look at this. Look at me. Look over here. Look, look. What is she saying? She wants me to see her, to take notice of her. She wants my eyes undivided, fixed upon her. And that is what the psalmist is crying out for. He's saying to God, I'm over here. Don't forget about me. Look at me. Cast your gaze upon me. His cries. Also that God would, verse 3, answer me. Don't be mute. Don't leave me to myself. Speak, O oh God. I need you. I need your grace. I need your word. I need your gospel. I need your promises. God, if you do not speak to me, I will die. God, would you please intervene and answer my cries for help and mercy? His third cry is found in the middle of verse 3. It says, light up my eyes. Sort of an awkward phrase. What he's really driving at is he's saying, open up my eyes, God. Help me to see you. Help me to trust you and to believe you. To see your goodness and your purpose and your mercy and your sovereignty even in the midst of this crisis. Sure, the, the dark clouds are foreboding. The cause the ray of your sun to burst forth and shine upon my weak and weary face. In all of this, we can easily imagine that David's eyes are red through all of this. 
He's questioning. He's crying. At one level, he trusts God. But at another level, his faith is riddled with doubt. It's easy enough, I'm sure, for David. He, he could probably pass a Sunday school exam with flying colors. But now, things are different. Now, we're not talking about a book. Now, we're talking about real life. And he is struggling, to put it mildly. Christian, it is okay to struggle. It's okay to lament. You need not be ashamed. You need not hide. Elsewhere in the Psalms, we are told in Psalm 56, verse 8, that God collects all of our tears in a bottle. The point is simply this, that not one tear you shed, not a single drop, is wasted or forgotten. None of it is in vain. None of your sorrow, none of your affliction, none of your pain, none of your sadness, not one single crisis, not one moment, not one hour, not one season of lamentation is discarded in the plan and purposes of God. Not one. From Psalm 13 to your own lament, each and every one is remembered. And each and every one is being used by the Spirit of God to further conform you and I into the image of Christ, the man, Isaiah 53, of sorrows. Think back to David. He cries out to God for, for God to do all of this, to consider, to answer, to enlighten. To do all of this, why? What is the psalmist's concern? Well, he sings them there in verses 3 and 4, doesn't he? He begs God to remember him and turn his face toward him, lest, verse 3, he sleep the sleep of death. Lest, verse 4 now, my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. What's his fear? Well, his fear is that he'll be, he'll be shaken. His enemies will boast. Brothers and sisters, his fear is that he will die. I don't think this is hyperbole at all. Once again, you and I are confronted with the utter desperation of this psalm. It really is lament. This is not, I repeat, not an example, and sometimes we do this. We make a molehill into a mountain. That's not the case here. The psalmist, David, he is really, literally on the verge of an early grave. And so he cries out. He pleads with God. He pours out his heart until there is nothing left. He begs God to have mercy on him. Now, Christian, while I have no intention of minimizing David's plight, or yours for that matter, when it comes to days and weeks and months and years and decades of sorrow, we must be a people who fall back on what we know in the midst of such sorrow. 
whether it's David or you and I, when we are surrounded by the ills of verses 3 and 4 in our own lives, it is then and especially then when we must preach the truths and realities of the gospel to our own hearts. Though enemies surround us, and that's true, Christ has defeated our greatest enemies on his cross. Christian, preach that to yourself. Preach that to yourself when your eyes are red and your pillow is soaked. Preach that to yourself. Know and preach that sin and death and hell have been conquered. Though it appears our opponents will prevail, Christ has triumphed over our foes. Preach this to yourself. Your enemies, they are being made and they will be made Christ's footstool. And though the grave stalks us, Christ has killed death. And when he walked out of that tomb on Easter morning, he made the promise that so too you and I will one day walk out of the tomb. You see, the point is, it is not enough for just you and I to turn to God in the midst of lamentation. What we must do is turn to God and lean into the promises of God. We must cling to His Word. We must build our lives upon the sturdy foundation of His Word. Or else, when crisis is brought into our life, all you and I will do is put band-aids on gunshot wounds and we'll bleed out. Now, if you turn your attention back to the psalm and you look specifically at verse 5, you will notice that a corner has been turned. This is brought out there by that first word in verse 5, that English word, but. It marks a significant transition. The psalmist now is confident, confident that despite all that is going on around him, God has in fact heard his prayers. Let's be clear though. All the problems still exist. You understand that? Whatever caused his heart to erupt in verse 1, it's still there. It's not like it has vanished. It's still there. You still got the pink slip. Because your company was downsizing. Your wife is still terminal. Your son is still an apostate. On that front, nothing has changed. You know what has changed, though? The heart of the psalmist. The circumstances all remain the same, but by the grace of the Holy Spirit, the soul is now resting in the goodness and the glory and the grace and the utter sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Evidence of the psalmist's confidence is seen in three ways. For starters, in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Where is his hope? What is the anchor for his soul? It is that he is trusting in God. Trusting in God, brothers and sisters, is rebar for our beaten and battered souls. 
It's worth mentioning the the phrase that's used there, steadfast love. It translates one of the Old Testament's favorite words to describe God toward his people. The ESV translates it as steadfast love. In the Hebrew, it's that fun word to say, hesed. And the problem with this Hebrew word is that it is not easily translated into English, namely because this word is pregnant. We do not in English have a one-to-one correspondence, nothing in our language that fleshes it out. Because of this, I trust it will be balm for your soul to recognize that perhaps the, the, the best way to understand what is being expressed here is that God's steadfast love, His said. It is his ceaseless covenant commitment to us. It's ceaseless because it doesn't end. And you know why it doesn't end? Because it had no beginning. It is God's ceaseless covenant. It's covenant because it's more than a contract. It's not like something where sort of we shake on it and one of us reneges. God has committed himself to his people. And that brings us to our third word. God's steadfast love is his ceaseless covenant commitment. God is committed to you. He is for you and not against you. And if you doubt that, need I remind you that he sent his only son to take your place and die for your sin. Which means what I hope you quickly see and realize is that this steadfast love of God towards his people, it is no mere hallmark card. It's not one of these sort of silly, shallow, sentimental drivel. If I could be so bold, it's not like so many people were a couple of months ago with the World Cup. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, I met people and family members I've known my whole life who all of a sudden were huge soccer fans. They'd never watched a soccer match a day in their lives. But I tell you what, boy, they were on that bandwagon. My point is simply this, that when it comes to God's steadfast love, it's not like some fair weather fan. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. It is a ceaseless covenant commitment. And by God's grace, David, in the midst of all the hairy stuff going on, he found his heart being pulled to trust in God. His confidence is also evidenced by the fact that he's doing what? He's rejoicing. End of verse 5, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Again, even though all the trouble remains, his heart still rejoices in the salvation that God has accomplished. Like a lighthouse in the midst of a tumultuous storm, David retreats to God, and there in retreating to God, he finds peace, he finds safety, he finds direction, he finds security. All of this causes David's heart to to well up. He erupts in song in verse 6. It says, I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Don't, don't miss the beauty of this. The psalm begins. It's only six verses. It begins with questions and complaints. And it ends 
with praise and worship. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? Over the course of this tiny psalm might take you 10 or 15 seconds to read. Think about this. The questions have given way to faith. The doubt has been conquered by trust. The fist shaking has turned to head bowing. How do we account for this? We account for this because at the end of the psalm, at the end of the day, at the end of your life, friends, you will either make God your trust and your treasure, or you will make something else your trust and your treasure. You see, what David came to realize is that question, how long? It's a question of time. And he came to realize that God is sovereign even over time. God is his confidence. Christian, the same is true for you. It has to be true of you. God must be your confidence. Christ must be your rock. The Holy Spirit must be your refuge. The triune God of grace and glory and gospel must be your stronghold. This is really the difference, beloved, isn't it? Between lament and whining. There's a difference, isn't there? Whining is just, it's just complaining. But lament is sorrow mingled with faith. Whining, it looks up to heaven with fury, with anger. Lament turns to the heavens in desperation. One is to be centered on self. The other longs to be satisfied in Christ. Whining is convinced that this world is all that there is, but lament longs for heaven, brothers and sisters, for real life. This is something that, this is not real life. You understand that, don't you? You were here today and gone tomorrow. This life is a vapor. There was a, what's the stuff called? There was dew on the grass this morning when I got up. It is gone by now. This is not real life. Real life is heaven. Real life is life with Christ. Real life is a new heaven and a new earth. Lament longs for that. Whining is sin and destructive. Lament is healthy and restorative. It's okay to lament. In fact, we ought to lament. To whine and complain. That's sin. Thinking about this distinction between whining and lament, I want to remind you, church, that these are songs. This is a song. And they are altogether popular in the Psalter. Remember, a third of the Holy Spirit-inspired songs in Scripture are songs of lament. And the question then is this, why? Why, brothers and sisters, is so much space given to lament? Or to maybe think about it a little bit differently, why should we today, as God's people, Sing songs of lament. 
Let me answer that by giving you six reasons. Six reasons to make the bitter taste of lament a part of your Christian diet. To begin with, life really is hard. We can say that, right? We have bad days. We have bad weeks. We have bad months. Heck, some of us have bad years. If that wasn't enough, injustices occur all around us. Loved ones suffer and die. And we are often helpless in the face of our enemies. At the same time, work can be daunting. Neighbors can be infuriating. Church family can be exhausting. And your husband or wife, your children, they can be, how shall we put it, sanctifying. Life is hard. Life is hard. So let's banish all the illusions that in this life, particularly the Christian life, that it's easy. It's not. It's not. And it's okay to say that it's not. Christian, we must learn to lament. This leads to a second reason that lament should be part of our Christian life. It reminds us that we can be real with God. From Job to Habakkuk, from the Psalter to Christ himself, the scriptures are chalked full of people, just like you and I, who were utterly real with God. Think about it for a moment. Job wants to stand before God face to face to make his case. Why? Job is convinced that he is innocent and that he is being treated unjustly. In a lot of ways, the whole book of Job is a book of lament. Habakkuk, that little three-chapter minor prophet, Habakkuk can't fathom the injustice from his perspective of how God could use the utterly wicked and depraved Babylonians to judge the less wicked and less depraved people of God. Not only does it not make sense to him, where Habakkuk sits, it is straight up wrong and unfair. Let us not forget about our Lord himself. On the eve of his betrayal and arrest, where do you find him? Well, you find him in the garden, deep in prayer, for hours on end to the point that drops of blood are pouring from his face. He knows what is coming, and we have recorded in Scripture that the incarnate Son of God is pleading with the Father for a way out, if it's possible. And of course, as we've seen from Psalm 13, David's throat is dry from crying out. How long? The point is, church, that from the heights of jubilee to the depths of sorrow, Scripture paints a painstakingly accurate portrayal of the human condition. And nowhere is that more true, more clear, than when you look at the Psalter. I should add, this is why Calvin referred to the Psalms as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. He said that because according to Calvin, there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not represented in the Psalms. 
In other words, the various emotions that we see expressed in the 150 Psalms, it is the same exact emotions that you and I find bubbling up in our own hearts. And brothers and sisters, that includes lament. So church, we can be real with God. There's no need to hide from Him anyway. I I mean, just stop for a moment and think about what an exercise in futility that is. To think that you can somehow, like Adam and Eve, hide in the garden and God not find you. There's no need to put on a, a smiley face as if to fool God. It doesn't work anyway. Instead, we are invited to be honest with God. To pour out our hearts to God. And sometimes, maybe even a lot of times, that will include lament. And you know what? That really is okay. Let me give you another reason why lament should be part of our Christian life. And here I am thinking specifically of our corporate gathering. Here's the reason. Not everyone who gathers for worship is chipper, full of joy, or happy. That is to say, it is quite possible that many who gather for worship are not as cheerful as, say, you are. In fact, it's possible, dare I say even normal, for many Christians to suffer from distress, from melancholy spirits, from pain, from misery, yes, even depression. And to gather for worship and to pretend, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Well, that's not helpful even in the slightest. Historian Carl Truman has put his thumb on this. In a wonderful essay entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Truman writes this. A diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party. But Truman's point and Psalm 13's experience should, I hope, quickly dispel any such notion. Rarely, if ever, Is the normal Christian life marked by constant joy and triumph? Certainly wasn't the case for the prophets, or John the Baptist, or the Lord Jesus, or his apostles, or those throughout church history. Ultimately, lament is a bitter pill that all of God's people have to swallow. And sometimes it's a pill that we swallow frequently. So my my exhortation then is this. Just as the Psalter itself exposes us to a full range of emotion, so as a church we should sing songs that capture the full range of emotion. Yes, we should sing songs of praise, of course. And we should sing songs extolling Christ's sacrifice. and, And we should sing songs that exalt Christ as King. We should do all of that. But, but more than that, we should also sing songs of lament. And the reason we should sing songs of lament is because so often lament is the echo of our hearts. I mentioned a fourth reason we should not stiff-arm songs of lament. That's this. They, 
they train us. They train us. Here's what I mean. Those who have no problems or difficulties in their lives, they can, by singing these songs, they can learn to sympathize with those who are struggling. Let's be very clear here, church. We are not called simply or just to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are also called to weep with those who weep. And by making lamentation part of our diet, we'll be trained to serve one another in these various ways. In a related vein, incorporating lament into our Christian life and congregation will also prepare us. I don't mean to be that guy, but here in the West, many Christians are not prepared. We are not prepared to suffer. We are not prepared for trials, for persecution, for affliction. For a host of reasons, and I don't plan on trying to diagnose all that this morning, but for a host of reasons, those spiritual muscles of ours, they have atrophied. Well, church, by you and I hitting the gym of lamentation, we can begin to build those muscles back up and gain strength where we are weak. And at the risk of being redundant, this is altogether important because the Christian life is often one of suffering. And I forgive you. You forgot to forgive the person who told you it was something else. Finally, We ought to make psalms of lament a part of our Christian life because it gives us hope. It gives us hope. It gives us hope because lament reminds us of our Lord and Savior, the Jesus Jesus Christ. Consider this with me for a brief moment. His entire earthly life was one of condescension and humility. But that's not all. It was also a life of suffering. From Christ's birth in a barn to his death on a cross, his whole life was marked by grief. Just think of the prophet Isaiah's portrayal of Christ. We are told, Isaiah 52, 14, that he was marred beyond human semblance. On top of that, Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men. Here it is. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Christ was a man of lament. He was acquainted with grief. He knew it all too well. He was, Isaiah 53.4, smitten by God. He was also, Isaiah 53.7, oppressed and afflicted. And all of this we are told, Isaiah 53, 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So Christian, Christ was made low. He suffered. His life was a life from the very beginning on this planet. It was a life of lament. And it all, as you know, reached its crescendo on the cross. Because there on the cross, Christ cried out, echoing those haunting words from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And this forsakenness, beloved, it wasn't first and foremost the physical pain of the cross, though we know, of course, that that would have been utterly excruciating. But what truly vexed the soul of Christ was the reality of His being made a curse. The, the sin of His people being imputed to Him. Him actually bearing in His own body the punishment for the sin that each you and I deserve. So it should go without saying, Christ lamented. And He did so for us. Christ endured the hell of the cross. He experienced in His own body the wrath of God. He felt the weight of sin descend upon His shoulders for us. The hammer of God's judgment descended from heaven to earth to crush the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all of this, the Lord Jesus willingly suffered willingly suffered that sort of sorrow and pain and lamentation. He did so not in vain. He did so so that you and I would be redeemed. Poor David, if you recall, up at the beginning of Psalm 13, he was convinced God had forgotten him. From where David was sitting, it seemed like God had hid his face from him. David thought he was left all alone and he feared that his enemies would prevail over him and that he would be left for dead. Those were David's fears. Now, now we know none of that was true. It wasn't true for David, but it was true for Christ. As both tears and blood poured forth from Christ, you had better believe, brothers and sisters, he lamented. And the good news is, is that Christ's lament gives hope to our souls. It gives life to our hearts. Brothers and sisters, there is grace enough for each and every one of us at the cross. Because not only did blood and tears flow that day, but so also did pardon and forgiveness and righteousness, and justification, and adoption, and resurrection, and eternal life. So it's true, and there's, there's no point in really sugarcoating it. We lament. We cry. We shed our tears. But Christ has won something more for us. Christ has promised in the midst of our lament that by His lament, He won for us an inheritance, a new heaven and a new earth. This is how Revelation 21.3 puts it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And what will God do as He dwells with His people? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
We summarize all of Revelation 21.3. Christ lamented so that one day we would never have to lament again. So I hope you realize in conclusion, we are actually in a position to answer Psalm 13's looming question. Because of Christ's life of lament, because his death for sin, because his resurrection from the dead, we can actually answer the question, how long? And the answer is, until Christ returns. Until Christ returns. Which I think is why, in a lot of ways, Scripture ends, beloved, with a cry of lament. You remember Revelation 22.20? Come. Lord Jesus. Come and end our lament. Wipe away the tears from our eyes. Well, He will. And that's the promise that He makes to us. Let's pray together this morning. Our great God and Father, we pray that You would work in our hearts in such a way so that we would first be real with You and with one another where it is appropriate. There is no point in fooling about as if we have it all figured out. We are pilgrims making our trek toward the celestial city. And along the way, we are faced and oftentimes overcome with many giants. Those who would cause us to doubt and question. Those who would cause us to shake our fists. Even our own sin wages against us in our mortal bodies. Lord, we are a people who need to learn to lament people who need to learn to weep and to weep with those who weep. We are a people who need to learn to pour out our hearts to you, to trust you, and to find your gospel promises echoing in our hearts even as we cry out our tears. Please give us space for this. Please help us in this. Please give us more of Christ. Please satisfy us in Christ and with Christ. Please give us hope. Please give us hope, even as we gather around the table of the Lord here in a moment. Hope that there is coming a day when faith will give way to sight. A day in which every tear will be wiped away. A day in which lament will be no more. And we will simply be in the presence of you, our God and our Father. And we will enjoy everlasting life. Help us to cry now, to lament now, knowing that then we will simply rejoice. Give us this grace in the name of the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.